Anyway, yeah, I was teaching in L.A. and uh, got used to the, for three or four days, immediately got used to the warmth. And uh, came back and I looked at the weather forecast and it mentioned something about snow. And I felt, oh, my God. Uh, it's like, you know, that, that feeling when you're in, well, the feeling I had in grade school when you'd be beaten up by the bullies and you're lying down on the ground, you're like, are you done? And then they walk away and then there's always this one guy that stops and, nah, he's not done yet. And they come back and they give you one more kick. You know, that's what this winter sort of felt like. And um, I was all, I felt myself going into that that place of moaning. And um, then I remembered a wonderful talk by uh, a great Buddhist teacher, Ajahn Sumedho. Somebody reminded me of it recently. And the, Sumedho, it was, I don't think he was even really giving a teaching. He just basically mentioned that uh, every Londoner he knew, he lived in London, that's where he taught, every Londoner he knew spent so much time uh, complaining about and suffering over the weather and it never occurred to him to complain about it, and therefore he never suffered about it. That it was in the act of having, in essence, I guess he was saying, uh, the act of having a preference of deciding, well, this day is good, immediately created bad days. And that if he didn't feel the, uh, if he didn't feel the need to have a view or an opinion about the weather, it spared him from being blown about by it. He'd every day just happen. And, you know, really, if you're in London, even if it's torrentially pouring, right, you're only going to be outdoors anyway for a little while. Most of us, uh, when it's pouring, we do the complaining while we're indoors and warm and not being rained on. So... Complaining is always an act of clinging on to something that's happened in the past and keeping it present in, when it's past. See if you can follow that. Parse that. <laughs> really could have said that more elegantly. All right. Uh, maybe it helps if I use my glasses. I was using my glasses elegantly last night. I had them on, and then when I was making a point... <laughs> uh, so complaining is it, right, anyway. So uh, I'll put them on so that I can find a meaningful time to make an emphasis. Uh, so see, I'm working with props these days. Uh, uh, this is how far I've uh, come. Uh, <coughs> so this reminded me of one of my favorite suttas. Um, most of the Theravada suttas are actually pretty easy to understand. They're uh, pretty straightforward. That's what I liked about Theravada. I would read my dad's Zen text, and I couldn't make, I couldn't tell heads or tails from what they were saying. It sounded beautiful, but you'd hear these Zen koans like uh, the master is asked, "Does a dog have Buddha nature?" And the master would say, "Moo." <laughs> I'm okay. I'm. I have no, it's, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> obviously, if I understood that, I'd be getting somewhere, but uh, 
So Theravada texts are mostly very straightforward. The, the biggest complaint that people have about them is that they're profoundly dull and repetitive. But they're easy to pretty much grasp. They pretty much point out the practice. There's nothing hidden. And so I, there, there's only a few teachings that are really kind of intriguingly Buddhisty in the sense of being difficult that you have to parse out. And one of my favorites is one of those suttas. It's called the Bahia of the Bark Cloth Sutta. And um, it's it sort of goes into this, what I sort of led off with, uh, into a, a wonderful teaching. So the story goes that, um, and I'm doing this all from memory, so uh, I, mean, I encourage you to look it up, Bahia, B-A-H-I-Y-A. And um, it's in a collection called the Udanas, which is all about awakening. What is awakening? And so the story goes that Bahia, who was a, a spiritual renunciate, he lived in the forest, and I believe that some of the ancillary texts comment that because he was wearing bark cloth, he was probably pretty poor. Some of the the renunciates had money so from their families, so they had probably nicer robes when they took off. But he was wearing, like, in essence, like you've ever seen those images from the Depression where somebody's wearing a barrel or something? He, he's, I mean, he's pretty much, he's, he's, he's pretty fucking poor. He's wearing, like, tree bark, okay? So, and, um, but he has a vision that, He's, he's pretty much become the shit. He believes that he's enlightened. He's achieved nibbana, complete uh, ending of stress and suffering. And he meditates on this idea, and he asks in his meditation, have I achieved the uh, rarefied state? And in his meditation arises uh, a deva. Now, if you're a literalist, which I am most definitely not, if you're one of those kind of people that take, you know, spiritual books really literally, then a dev is an angel. But most Buddhist monks I study with are very psychological, and they just read devas as, you know, projections or memories or, you know, psychological uh, experiences. So he has the experience of an old, revered relative of his appearing and coming up, floating up to him, in his meditation, and the relative says, eh, you're not enlightened. <laughs> Which is pretty much a narcissistic blow. In, in, in psychology, most of us need to have a feeling of, we build ourselves up, we tell ourselves stories that, uh, you know, I'm good at this, or I'm, good at, I'm, I'm really good at this, so that we can give ourselves permission to get up on stage and sing a song. I'm a great singer. Or, you know, I'm a wonderful painter. That gives us the, uh, the encouragement to show our paintings. So we all need a, so a certain degree of healthy narcissism. So this is a blow that he gets from his, his, this spectral visit by his relative. But the relative says it's all, all is not lost. There is a being called the Buddha who is awakened and can show you how to get to that path. So Bahia, who is very poor, 
and not of great health, uh, travels and searches and finds the Buddha. The Buddha is out, at the time Bahia finds him, is out doing what's known as his alms rounds. He's begging for food. And he's got some of his followers behind him. So it's traditionally not a good time to ask a Buddha for, hey, how do I become enlightened? But Bahia insists, and he explains quite uh, uh, intuitively that I'm, I may not have I may not be around. I may not be alive by the time you get back. It sounds a little bit like he's a drama queen, right? You know. <laughs> you, no, you can't beg for food. I need to know now. So he asked the Buddha three times, and, and there's, in case you don't know it, if you run into the Buddha, ask him anything three times. If you ask him once, a lot of times the Buddha's kind of, not a, he's not always the nicest guy, the Buddha, when you actually study him. Sometimes he's like, man, that's not a worthy question. Sometimes he's like, I'm not going to answer that. Sometimes he just sits silently, which is, boy, that was dumb. Uh, but if you ask a Buddha three times, he, the Buddhas will feel compelled to answer. I've no, I guess it's a tri- tradition from the time. So the third time the Buddha answers. The first part of the answer is, uh, goes as follows. He says, Bahia, train as follows. Train yourself as follows. In the scene, what you see, only experience the scene. In what you hear, only experience what's heard. In what you smell, only experience the smell. <laughs> <laughs> In what's felt, only experience what's felt. And in the, what arises in the mind, only experience what's arisen in the mind without anything else. So that's the first part. And then he says, and it seems to be a little bit of a jump in logic between the first part and the second part of the instruction. The Buddha then says, when you get to a place where you don't see or find any of yourself out there or in here or anywhere, then you'll be awakened and you will found true lasting happiness. Wow, that's kind of deep, right? It's kind of abstract. Don't worry. I'm here to explain it. (laughs) And the final part, after this teaching, um, interestingly enough, Right after he gets this teaching, Bahia becomes enlightened. The Buddha walks away, and Bahia is immediately killed by a runaway cow. <laughs> I fuck you not. He's totally killed by a runaway cow, at least according to the sutta. So it's like, bang. He was right. He was right. He didn't have a lot of time. <laughs> so, the, and the sutta concludes with, the Buddha adding, of, and even the final denouement was, here was a man, you know, who, who achieved enlightenment. Even if on a night sky there is no moon or no stars, and no stars, if you know this, what I've taught, there will be no darkness. So I'm going to cover those three points one by one. The first part of only, see, I've 
<laughs> the first part, uh, this gives me a thing to gesture with, uh, the first part is in the scene, only seeing the scene, in the herd, only hearing what's heard. And what the Buddha is saying here is, in life, we have a tendency to not just experience things, like experience the rain of London, or experience the weather, but we add all of this underlying resistance, all this underlying views that completely change the nature of experience. For instance, you see on the street somebody that you don't really particularly want to see, and immediately we go into the tense muscles, the tight stomach, the jaw locks. Our sight zeroes in on them. The breath becomes clipped. And so when we go and we actually encounter that person, we're already in an armored state, already prepared for the worst, already in battle before anything has actually been said. The same thing for seeing the really attractive. We create the feelings of, I need this. And that's a different feeling in the chest. That's an opening. But that's also a feeling of uh, craving in the body, fueled by the hypothalamus. So it's also a series of of tensions and And even in craving for someone attractive or something attractive, the breath becomes um, baited, becomes quick. In essence, disliking or liking, when we look beneath the thing that has caught our attention and we actually investigate what's beneath it, we'll find in both cases there's actually different forms of stress beneath each. A, a, a friend of mine, she was very, very bright, and she I, I love this story, she told me that for years and years and years she mistook lust for fear, or fear for lust. She would be attracted to guys that when she saw them would make her breath become clipped, her ch- chest would become tight, her stomach would become tight, and her her, uh, you know, her, her mind would fixate on them. What her body was telling her was, get the fuck away. This is another version of your father you've just met. He's going to abandon you and lead you into all the same suffering. But in her mind, she just knew that state from childhood, and she knew that stress and stuff, and that's what she associated desire for. They're actually very similar. When you look at the roots of... Um, that craving for food or shelter or togetherness and the states that craving to get away, fear, aversion, they both use the um, what's known as the HPA axis of the body. They can feel very, very similar. And in both cases, we're wanting to change. When we see something we love, we want to get it. When we see something we don't love, we want to get away from it. Either way, right now, something's happening that's not good enough. We're creating this feeling that right now what we have isn't good enough. We create stress. So this is what Sumedho, in essence, is saying about the rain in London. We create. We create that it's bad. We create 
that I've got to get out of this city or whatever. In essence, very, very little, the Buddha said, of real suffering is actually in the first noble truths of old age, sickness, death, frustrations of being separated from things we love. The bulk of our suffering comes from adding this story of this is good, this is bad, the underlying stresses, the underlying stories we add. This is unfair. This is wrong. This is bad. This isn't good. This shouldn't be this way. New York should never have long, cold winters. (laughs) Or you see somebody's shoes you like. I like those shoes. I don't ever have good shoes. What's wrong with me? Why am I screwed? So... (laughs) we turn a very fleeting experience that would arise and pass into suffering the moment we develop preferences, opinions. We like to believe that these preferences and opinions are inevitable. Well, who wouldn't hate this winter we've just had? And who wouldn't prefer to have L.A.'s weather? Well, actually, when you move there, guess what? There are people who hate the weather there. Really, I was just there. I know this for a fact. (laughs) Somebody from Minnesota would not hate this weather. It's all subjective. And really, at the end of the day, it's only when we feel the need to add a view or an opinion that we start creating so much of the underlying suffering and we no longer just experience, see the things, feel the emotions, experience the moods. They all arise and pass. And it's funny how certain things in life we have uh, opinions about and other things in life we don't allow ourselves to have opinions in life. Virtually everybody in this city has had good or bad subway rides to work, but nobody has ever had a bad escalator ride. It's impossible because nobody would ever be so stupid as to have an opinion about their escalator ride. Oh, that was a bumpy ride at Macy's from the second to the third floor. The tourists and their bags, I just didn't have a good view of the the second floor. You would never, ever do that, and therefore it's impossible to have a bad escalator ride. (laughs) But it's when we give ourselves permission to start focusing on and believing that there's something we can do about things that we have no control over, that we start creating the suffering. So that's the first part of the teaching. Stop adding to the scene, the heard, the smell, just allowing and experiencing it. And in so doing, the fewer things that we have a feeling of this is wrong or this is good or this is bad, too long, too short, too cold, too warm, too wet, too solid, too dry, too big, too small, when we just go into each experience observing it, the amount of suffering in life begins to diminish radically. So the Buddha is, in essence, uh, extolling the virtues of just experiencing and opening to life without needing to narrate or judge. Now, the second part is um, where he goes on to say, and if you see, you don't see yourself out there or find yourself in here, anywhere in between, you'll become awakened. Now what the Buddha is saying here is, on top of 
adding things to life. One of the ways we really create suffering in life is by viewing experience in terms of my or mine. We try to own things. We try to identify with things. So, for example, I, uh, and this is the only one that comes up to mind, Sometimes my analogies are better than others. But I have, outside of the place I live, there's um, a recycling can and a, a garbage can. And I live on the corner, and so every, every person with a dog, which is every fucker in Williamsburg, <laughs> puts their shit in my recycling can. So I spend the day reaching in and pulling little bags of dog shit <laughs> from cans of my cat food that have been spent and dumping it in the thing. It's all right. It really doesn't matter at all. But it's funny because when I go outside and I see somebody walking away who's just dumped it, I'm just, hey! <laughs> Part of me went, hey, this is my, my recycling can! Put your dog shit in somebody else's recycling can. The moment I add my in front of it, the suffering goes up. How dare you put in my my can? This is mine. If I didn't think my, and I just said, oh, okay, it's in the wrong can, I'll just put it away. No, so little, so much less suffering. But the moment I hear two two people are whispering, are they talking about me? My reputation? Holy shit! They're talking about me! Mine! They're fucking with me! No, they're not. <laughs> they're really not. It's just words. We like to believe that we have to protect what people think about us. We want to even own the views that other people have about us. I want to... You don't like me? What the fuck's the matter with you? <laughs> How dare you? What have I done wrong? The more we need to own the views, the reputations, own the, uh, the stuff out there, we believe something is mine. This is my city. This is my country. <laughs> the suffering just flows behind that statement. So, um, all right, you might get it. The more we detach, disengage, let go of, don't claim, just see everything in our lives as stuff that is passing through, but don't feel the need to add my. That doesn't mean we abuse things that we don't own. A famous story about the monk Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah taught a... uh, it was a famous monk, and he had a cup. And nobody else was allowed to use his cup. And everybody else couldn't have their cup. They, all their cups were interchangeable. But nobody was allowed to use Ajahn Shah's cup. wasn't allowed. And finally, one student had the temerity to ask Ajahn Shah, why do you get a cup and we don't get a cup? That's the way I voice the questions of the students. So you can tell the difference between Ajahn Chah, who talks like this, and the student, who talks like that. So, 
Why don't you get a cup? And we don't. And Ajahn Chah said, well, I know this cup is going to break. It's not going to be mine. So it's not really mine. It's just a cup that I get to use. But if you guys get a cup, you would think, this is my cup. And you would suffer when it broke. Because all cups break. You'll get it. You'll get it. (laughs) (laughs) If we learn to be with the things that are in our lives, the people we love, the things we love, our acoustic guitars, or whatever it is you really love, without adding the my, that doesn't mean that somebody gets the right to take it from you. It's just every time we add the this is mine, this is me, I, mine, then we suffer. Even more so, it's in the way we experience all our thoughts and moods and ideas, claiming them as our own. The moment I say, that's my thoughts, my feelings, my suffering, then it becomes so much worse. So much worse. If I, each time I have a fear, just think, oh, fear arose in me today. It arises in everybody else. I suffer so much less. But when I relate to fears, oh, my fear is so much worse than everybody else's fear. You don't know how bad my fear is. My stress is more stressful for me than yours. My my moods are this more moody than your moods. As I like to quote the famous neuroscience study where they just found that there are only primarily a very few, they said four basic emotions from which every other emotion is constructed. We're all working from a very simple color palette. And yet every time we have an emotion, we tend to believe nobody can understand this is mine alone. When we learn to relate to the things that arise in the mind and arise outside in the world, not in terms of what does this mean about me, is this good for me, bad for me, is this my thing or not my thing, and just view it as stuff arising, then the suffering goes away. The suffering vanishes. We can do this if we constantly turn to what we did in the meditation Every time we notice there's suffering arising, not view it as the fault of the object, and instead turn again to what we are adding to the experience. How can I do three things? Recognize or remember to look inwards. Feel the stuff that I'm adding, the tension, the resistance, the guardedness, the armoring, and then relax. If I remember... I feel, and then I relax the breath and the body, suddenly the beautiful objects become less alluring, the ugly, threatening, fearful things become less ugly, threatening, and fearful. This doesn't mean we can't still be attracted and enjoy the beauty of life, but we'll find that life is much less of an emotional roller coaster ride, and there's so much more opportunity for peace and tranquility and calmness and, and um, wisdom to arise, the less we allow the things in the world and the underlying things that we add without any recognition to push us around. The more we can remember to look inside, feel where we're adding the resistance and relax it, the more we will find peace. 
So finally, that last bit about in the the night sky, even when there's no sun, there's no stars, and there's still, Bahia, once he's enlightened, would find or encounter no darkness. What does that mean? What it means is that darkness is a an idea. It's an idea that we add on to. If you go outside at night and there's no stars and there's no moon, all there is is an absence of light. But the idea of darkness and all that darkness conveys, the fear, the unknowing, the lack of control, the lack of, of seeing, the lack of confidence, all of that is what we add to the experience. So the Buddha is saying that when you really get it, that we don't need to add anything to life, we, or we can at least cut back on what we add to life, and we can cut back on the claiming and the ownership and the taking things personally. The more we do that, when we go out, even into the nights where there is no light available, we don't find ourselves in the dark. We don't feel lost in the dark. Because we don't add the feeling of loss the feeling of being bewildered. We're just there. The fear and the darkness is the stuff we add on habitually, but don't need to. So whenever we encounter something in life that normally we feel is automatically bad, automatically darkness, investigate it. Look into it. How am I making this worse? How am I clutching onto the breath and not releasing it? How am I tightening the stomach or the shoulders or the chest? How am I allowing the mind to stay jumping about, fighting, running, seeking diversion, coming back? How am I adding the story of this is bad? How much can I release? How much can I open to the experience? How much can I view it as not personal, but just another part of life? Thank you for listening. I hope there was something of value somewhere in there. And now I turn off the...